Our Old Testament reading this morning is taken from Jonah chapter 1. We'll be reading the first 16 verses, 1 through 16. Hear the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account the evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And then turning to the New Testament, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. Again, hear the word of God. Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, 
What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? What is it like to follow Jesus? This morning's passage uh, continues what must have been an absolutely exhausting day for our Lord. When we put together the accounts of Matthew and Mark, we realized that on a single Sabbath day, Jesus had gone up, he had taught the entire Sermon on the Mount, astonishing the crowds with the profundity and the absolute authority of his teaching. And then on his way back down the mountain, he graciously healed a leper with his touch. He healed a centurion servant with a cry of his own command. And then he headed back to Peter and Andrew's house, undoubtedly hoping to get a break and to get some rest. He would have been exhausted. But as he enters the house, he discovers that Peter's mother-in-law is sick, and so he heals her too. And as the sun goes down on the Sabbath day, instead of our Lord being able to go and get some sleep, uh, the crowds rush and crowd to the door, demanding his attention. So Jesus goes out to meet them as well. The crowds were packing the doorway with people desperately seeking healing for themselves and for their loved ones. We are told in verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. They brought many, he healed all. What is it like to follow Jesus? Sometimes following Jesus leads to really demanding and exhausting days. But if that was true for the disciples, it was doubly true for Jesus. He's absolutely exhausted as the crowds are pressing in upon him. He's been at work for some 15, 16 hours or maybe even more. We have to remember that the Son of God had taken to himself a true human nature. That is, he became tired just like we do. Realizing that the only way to get a break from the large crowd was to head out to sea, Jesus tells his disciples to get the boat ready. Actually, please notice the authority in the text. He commands his disciples to get the boat ready. In what follows, we see, first, the cost of following Jesus, second, the priority of following Jesus, and third, the privilege of following Jesus. Those will be our three main headings for this morning's sermon, so let me give those to you again. First, the cost of following Jesus. Second, the priority of following Jesus. And third, the privilege of following Jesus. We begin with the cost of following Jesus in verses 18 through 20. Please look there with me, beginning at verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There is a huge crowd pressing in on Jesus. And in all likelihood, 
the prime motive for almost at all of them, let's be gracious and say the prime motive for most of them is that they wanted Jesus to do something for them. That is, they saw Jesus as a means to their own ends. The crowds were not coming out to, to follow Jesus and to worship him in himself. Rather, they were coming out because they knew Jesus had wonder-working power and they wanted him to do something for them. It was their agenda they were seeking to get fulfilled. So Jesus gave orders to go over to the other side. And we ask, well, gave orders to whom? And the answer is obvious. Jesus has a very small band of devoted disciples. He gives orders to them to get the boat ready to cross the Sea of Galilee to go over to the other side. Uh, This already makes an important distinction for us as we consider this passage. There is a vital distinction between the crowds who simply want something from Jesus and the very small group of people who have bowed the knee and begun to call him Lord who are willing to follow him wherever he goes. Where it's natural when the Lord gives commands, they say, yes, Lord, your servant is listening. Now a great separation is about to take place. Jesus was getting into the boat to go to the other side, and only a tiny fraction of the crowd was going to be able to go over with him. Now suppose you were in this crowd. You're you're just awed by Jesus' teaching and his ability to cast out demons and to heal people, and you want to get in the boat. What do you say to Jesus in the hopes that he's going to make you part of this tiny group of people who's going to get in the boat with him to go to the other side? Intriguingly, it is a scribe who first puts himself forward. Um, Don't think of scribes as people who simply write things down. Scribes were learned experts in the law. Think of them as a combination of a a religious lawyer, or think of them as a lawyer in the civil sphere, because that's actually how it worked, but also as a trained theologian. They were widely respected throughout society. People looked up to the scribes. In fact, the scribes, when they came together and gave their expert judgments, often were considered to be given the final judgment, the very word of God that we needed for our lives. You know, the scribe might have appeared to be a really good catch for Jesus. If you think about how the crowds would have seen it, here's this traveling rabbi, and yes, he's amazing. But you know, he's so far, he's always gathered really as a bunch of Galilean fishermen. And Galilean fishermen are, you know, they're fine. But here comes a credentialed member of society, right? Somebody that everybody looked up at, and he tells Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Surely the scribe was a good catch for Jesus, wasn't he? Well, not quite. In fact, we need to remind ourselves that there are no good catches in the kingdom of God. The scribe came to Jesus exactly the way that everyone else comes to Jesus, as a sinner in need of saving grace. The only thing the scribe brought to Jesus was the sin that made Christ's death necessary in order for him to be saved. All of Christ's disciples start out as hell-deserving sinners, and beloved, that includes every single one of us here in this room. You may recall the shocking words that Jesus taught near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. 
There Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me say it again. This scribe brought the same thing to Jesus that you and I do. He brought the sin that made Christ's death necessary in order for him and in order for us to be saved. And yet the scribe makes what is, at least at first, a truly gripping appeal as to why Jesus should let him into the boat. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, if you're a teacher, that sounds like a lot of commitment to me. The scribes seem to be choosing Jesus as his own rabbi. As R.T. France points out, his scribal training leads him to take it for granted that it is for him to choose to follow Jesus, as did the disciples of the rabbis, rather than for Jesus to call him, as we saw Jesus calling his disciples in Matthew chapter 4. Our Lord's response assumes that the scribe has not yet thought out the commitment involved in true discipleship. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. The crowd was probably deeply impressed with this scribe's apparent commitment to following Jesus. Yet instead of Jesus responding with a joy-filled welcome aboard... Jesus wants to point out that he doesn't yet know what it means to follow him. Jesus wants to point out the cost of true discipleship so that this man will understand that following Jesus was going to bring him neither the comforts nor the respect and privileges that people ordinarily seek in this world. Uh, There's actually an interesting linguistic detail in Matthew Uh, that is helpful for us here. In Matthew, every person who comes to Jesus and calls him teacher, a very respectful term, is calling him teacher as an outsider. Let me say that again, because this is helpful. Every person in the Gospel of Matthew who calls Jesus teacher is an outsider. The disciples call Jesus Lord. They've bowed the knee. The outsiders who are approaching Jesus with respect call him teacher. The only one of the twelve who ever calls Jesus teacher in the Gospel of Matthew is Judas Iscariot. And we know how that turned out. Um, This little detail may be helpful for us here. This scribe is wowed by Christ's ability as a teacher. But he has not yet bowed the knee and confess that Jesus is his own Lord. So our Lord bluntly explains to this scribe what becoming a true disciple and follower will actually entail. Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, you know, that's a place to live. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, now many commentators Assume here that the scribe goes away sorrowful, that he wasn't willing to pay this cost. But I want you to realize that neither here nor in the next example we're going to look at are we told anything at all about how the individuals respond. 
See, the Holy Spirit isn't giving us these stories so that we can think about them. He wants us to focus on the jarring words of Jesus about what it means to follow him. And he wants us to apply it not to other people, but to ourselves. Have you considered the life that Jesus led? Jesus is saying, follow me. And he's calling you to follow one who will ultimately be beaten and crucified. He is not calling you to a walk in the park. Now, we naturally want to tell people about how wonderful it is to follow Jesus. Uh, That desire is both good and right. It is wonderful to follow Jesus. Nevertheless, Jesus routinely reminds us of the cost of true discipleship. Here's the key point. Jesus doesn't want fans. Jesus wants disciples. Um, It's easy to get excited about Jesus. I I don't know what age you got excited about Jesus, but, you know, let's say you're a high school student or a college student, you're listening to the Gospels. And Jesus' words as he teaches, they open up your life. They give you insight into how the world works, into your own heart. And you find his words comforting and encouraging and motivating. And you become excited about Jesus. But, you know, you can be excited about Jesus as a fan and never bow the knee and actually commit to being one of his disciples. Uh, What's the difference? Well, fans get excited about people who are really good at something, or achieving great things, or it could just be your local football team, which you hope is going to do great things. And and you kind of bask in the glory of their success. Uh, That's why um, sporting fans, whenever their team wins, say, we won! And when the team loses, uh, the coach made some bad decisions. You know, they lost. Beloved, Jesus is not looking for people that are merely excited about him to be fans. He's looking for people who will commit their lives to following him. That will count it a privilege to suffer for his name. Knowing that the mission he is on is the greatest mission in the entire history of the world. The question remains, are we just fans or are we disciples? Fans of Jesus never take up their cross to follow him. Fans of Jesus, when they discover that following Jesus might involve becoming an outcast in their own family, they count the cost and they become fans of someone or something else. The disciple embraces Jesus Christ's mission as his own in this world, and counts as a privilege to suffer for his sake. And even when true discipleship is, I'm sorry, even when the true disciple is being overwhelmed, the true disciple will say to Jesus, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. See, beloved, Jesus is not interested in fans. Jesus is calling you through these words to examine yourself, to make certain that you have counted the cost and that you have truly committed to being his disciple. I think we can say this with certainty. The crowd must have been shocked by Christ's words. The great separation where Jesus and a small number of disciples get in the boat and leave the crowd behind is about to take place. 
So another man steps forward. Now this man, in some way that we're not told, is loosely identified as a disciple. Undoubtedly, he's someone that has followed Jesus around a bit. You know, wherever he heard Jesus was teaching, that that was the church he went to this morning. That was the synagogue he went to this morning. Uh, Undoubtedly, this man had followed Jesus up the hill and heard the Sermon on the Mount. But beyond that, we cannot say very much. Having heard Christ's jarring words to the scribe, this man is beginning to count the cost, and he's trying to find a way to straddle the fence. Do, Do you see that in the passage? He's counting the cost, but he's trying to find a way to straddle the fence. That is, this man doesn't want to reject Jesus, but he does want to avoid some of the more unpleasant aspects of following Jesus in this life. Listen closely to verses 21 and 22 with me. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now at first blush, Jesus' words could strike us as being entirely unreasonable. This man comes to Jesus with what appears to be a completely reasonable request. He is saying, Jesus, I want to follow you, but please let me bury my father first. Now, honoring a deceased father would have been considered an absolutely sacred responsibility to first century Jewish people, right? So so the words of Jesus in reply are much more shocking to them than they are even to us. This man was, after all, saying that he was committed to following Jesus once this obligation had been fulfilled. Please note, too, that unlike the scribe, this man addresses Jesus as a Lord. So what's the problem? We need to start with a simple question. Was this man's father still alive, or had he just died? Many Western commentators assume that he is asking to bury his father, who had just died. That's because we're reading it in light of the 21st century, rather than reading it in light of the ancient Near East in the 1st century AD. But the Eastern Church has rightly grasped the question. After all, Jewish practice was that a dead person needed to be buried within 24 hours. One commentator puts it like this. If the father had just died, the son could hardly be out at the roadside with Jesus. His place was to be keeping vigil and preparing for the funeral. Rather, to bury one's father is a standard idiom for fulfilling one's filial responsibilities for the remainder of his father's lifetime. See, this apparent disciple was not willing to prioritize following Jesus over his family. His parents were not believers. We see that because Jesus refers to them as the dead, that is, the spiritually dead. And so they were not interested in their son running off and following around this itinerant minister, who, by the way, had just said, you know, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, son of man has nowhere to lay his head, You know, we want our son to grow up to be someone important in society. 
Jesus says, follow me. This man says, not yet. Later, but not yet. Nevertheless, this man wanted assurance from Jesus that it was okay for him to put off following our Lord until after his father died. Let me say something to you young people. Uh, I honestly believe this is the biggest temptation that Satan is going to bring into your life. Uh, all of you, but particularly those of you who are young, this is the biggest temptation Satan is going to bring into your life. Satan is not so foolish as to try to convince you that you should commit right now to never following Jesus Christ. I mean, that would be impossible. What he wants to do instead is convince you to put it off until later. Right? He doesn't want you to say never, never. He wants you to say later, later. And Jesus is calling you to follow him right now. Right? That's the temptation that you are going to face. Our Lord's response, therefore, is not only jarring, it is exceedingly gracious. He doesn't want us to fall into that temptation. Jesus said to him, what beloved he is saying to each and every one of us this morning, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. As I say, those whom Jesus is referring to as the dead are almost certainly this man's own family. And they are the dead because they're not following Jesus. They are spiritually dead. And Jesus says, let the spiritually dead take care of the physically dead. You follow me. Sorry, I get emotional at this point because I know this is a temptation in your lives. And not just for you who are young. Beloved, please do not allow your loved ones who do not trust Jesus to hinder you from following Jesus right now with all of your heart. And that does not just reply to, apply to our young people. It applies to us as we get older and we have to deal with people who want us to affirm what God calls sin. And we're torn. And Jesus says to us, as for you, you follow me. Following Jesus is costly. It is also so valuable that we must prioritize following Jesus over, over even our closest human relationships. The question arises, why would we do that? Well, we're about to see. Look at verses 23 and 24 with me. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. Um, Jesus and his disciples getting into the boat is such a, you know, just a throwaway line. It'd be easy for us to skip over it. But actually, the way Matthew tells us already tells us something important. Jesus gets into the boat, and the disciples followed him. It actually marks out their relationship. In this case, the disciples are literally following Jesus. That's what a disciple is, someone who's committed to following Christ. Mark tells us that Jesus had found a cushion 
in the stern of the boat, and that he had reclined on it, and that he had gone to sleep. If we think back over the incredibly demanding day that Jesus has, we realize he was completely physically exhausted. This is what he was waiting for, a chance to be renewed with the renewal of sleep. Now that he was finally away from the crowds, Jesus had fallen into a very deep sleep. In fact, the original construction implies more than our translation. Uh, Our translation says, but he was asleep. It is better to follow Jeffrey Gibbs who translates this phrase, but he himself kept on sleeping. There's, There's two emphatic things there. First of all, there's a contrast between Jesus and the disciples. They're trying to make the boat work but he himself, and secondly, he didn't just fall asleep. So we're going to see the disciples are going to panic over the storm, but Jesus kept on sleeping. Yet while Jesus was being refreshed with sleep, a sudden and violent storm had swept down into the Sea of Galilee. Um, Here's a good rule of thumb if you're out at sea. If the sailors aren't panicked, there is no need for you to be panicked either. Um, However, in this case, Jesus' disciples are fishermen. They go down in the sea for their lives ever since they were teenagers. They knew how to handle a boat. They knew how to handle storms. And they were terrified because their boat was about to go under. The waves are coming over on the top. They're so terrified that they wake Jesus up and they say, Lord, save us. We are perishing. Our Lord had explained the cost of discipleship on the shore. Now the disciples were discovering that following Jesus was not always a pleasure cruise. Thankfully, they will discover a great deal more as well. Look at verses 25 and 26 with me. And they went and woke Jesus, saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid O you of little faith. Now, to state the obvious, um, fishermen, professional sailors in one sense, they're out on the boat all the time, fishermen do not ask carpenters for help in a storm. Right? They knew, however, they were in desperate straits, and Jesus, once again, was the only hope that they had. Yet instead of rescuing them from the storm immediately... Jesus begins by rebuking them. Why are you so afraid, O you of little faith? Actually, I don't know why the translators do this. Maybe it's just custom. The word used here, but it's translated afraid, actually means cowardly. I think that's helpful to know because when you think about being afraid, we don't normally attach a lot of moral emphasis to it. But being a cowardly disciple shows that Jesus is actually giving them a pretty stern rebuke. Why are you acting like a bunch of cowards? Jesus is giving a rather negative evaluation of how they are responding to the storm. Yes, following Jesus is not turning out to be a pleasure cruise. Yet they ought to have realized that as long as Jesus was in the boat with them, they were completely secure in his care. Now, you got to be careful as you apply this to your own life. 
This does not mean that the storms of life will not cause harm to you. It clearly does not mean that you will not die in the service of Jesus Christ. Right? For 20 centuries, there have been plenty of martyrs. Following Jesus will be costly. That was Jesus' first point. Following Jesus may actually result in your death. But yet you're completely secure in his arms. Because all death is going to do is bring you more fully into his immediate presence. What, what we ought to realize in the midst of the storm is that the safest place we can possibly be on the face of the earth is following Jesus as closely as we can. No matter what the storm does to us, no matter what our family members or our culture does to us, nothing in all creation could ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. And what is your chief end? Beloved, you can think of the most horrible thing that could happen to you this week, and it cannot keep you from glorifying God and from enjoying him forever. There is no reason for us to be cowards. If we die while following Jesus, instead of being separated from him, we will move to being more immediately in his presence. Let me say, this is a vital truth for us to keep reminding ourselves of, or we're going to end up being cowardly disciples ourselves. When we count the cost and commit to the priority of following Jesus, seeking first his kingdom and its righteousness, we will at times go into harm's way. The very Lord whom we are to fear will go to the cross and die. And yet there is no place safer in the entire universe then wherever we are when we are following Jesus Christ as closely as we can. As we confess in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, my faithful Savior Jesus Christ has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Trusting in Jesus as our good shepherd will stiffen our spines. Trusting in Jesus as our good shepherd will keep us from being cowardly. It will move us to being courageous. So Jesus rebukes his disciples for their own good, Then he rose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is the question that the entire passage has been driving toward. What manner of man is this? That's the question we need to answer. What manner of man is this, who tells us to count the cost and then demands that we follow him anyway and that we prioritize following him over even our closest family relationships. The disciples are suddenly in awe of Jesus. In Mark's account of the story, the men move from being afraid of the storm to being exceedingly afraid. Right? They don't become less afraid when the sea grows calm. 
Rather, they realize they are in the presence of the Holy One, and they become exceedingly afraid. They are more fearful now of Jesus than they had been of the storm. So let's seek to answer that question. What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Well, if we know our Bibles well, you'll very quickly connect this story back to our old covenant reading this morning with Jonah. Those stories are actually being told in a parallel fashion. Jonah gets into a boat. He goes to sleep. Jesus gets into a boat. He goes to sleep. In both stories, a terrifying storm stirs up the sea so that experienced sailors fear for their lives. In both stories, the sailors seek out the person who wasn't a sailor for help. In Jonah, they seek out the Lord's wayward prophet. In Matthew, they seek out Jesus, who is the Christ. In both stories, the sailors pray. In both stories, when the sea grows instantly calm, the sailors move from being afraid to becoming exceedingly afraid, for they are encountering a God who is far greater than the forces of nature. Do you see all those parallels? They're obviously there intentionally. Matthew, as he's recounting the actual facts, is telling the narrative in a way that we will connect it with Jonah. But here's the key point. For all those parallels, the point of the story is the difference. Let me say that again. For all those parallels, the point of the story is the difference. When the sailors rouse Jonah from his sleep, they urge him to pray to his God with the possibility that Jonah's God might still the storm. The disciples in Matthew pray to Jesus. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. In Jonah, God acts from heaven and stills the storm. In Matthew, Jesus stands up and rebukes the storm and calms the sea. See, Matthew wants you to see that Jesus is not in the place of Jonah. He's not merely a greater prophet who is to come. Jesus is in the place of Almighty God. What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? He is Emmanuel, God with us. Yes, Jesus is telling us to count the cost of being his disciple. Yes, Jesus is telling us to prioritize following him even over our closest human relationships. Now the Holy Spirit is revealing to us why we must do this. For when we are following Jesus Christ, we are doing nothing less than following God himself. Will everyone here this morning commit to passionately following Jesus Christ and to growing in discipleship all the days of our lives? May God in his grace make it so. That's a good thing for us to pray for for each other. That each of us would be growing and committed disciples. But beloved, Jesus is saying something different to you this morning. He's saying, don't look at them. I am calling you. 
whatever other people might do, as for you, you follow me. Amen.